In this series so far, we've been starting with definitions of consent, and we've seen that it is not so easy to come up with these. But in this episode, we're looking beyond consent. So what do you think should be at the centre of our laws around sex? I think <laughs> it's, it's working out how to tread the line between recognising that that substantive vision of why sex is good is both highly personal but it's massively political and we never through law are making statements that don't make political statements and so I think what has to be at the heart of this is an awareness of that, an, an acceptance of that, a willingness to confront that and a, a lot of work to kind of highlight what's at stake. And how might we define ethical sex? We need a very broad understanding of ethics. So we need to think about a collective ethics of sex that includes a commitment to challenging gender power dynamics, that includes a wider culture of respect for autonomy and relationality, and that does see sex as part of a wider set of social practices you know both generally and between people so i think then individually ethical sex is about in the end the kind of basics of ethical interactions which is seeing the other person or people as complete beings who are different and ultimately unknowable In this five-part series, we will explore our ideas about consent, where they've come from and how we tend to use them, particularly in our laws, and how these ideas have evolved both legally and socially. My name is Amrita Alawalia McMedis, and this is The Age of Consent. Over the course of this series, we've looked at many dimensions of consent. We've discussed the history of consent as a legal concept and how it is defined legally now. We've compared this to social perceptions of consent and looked at how the gaps between these perceptions and the law can have very real impacts. Finally, we've also explored ways these perceptions have been challenged by people working to change them. Across this series, we've also followed the story of the Maiden Tribute. We've tracked the legal reform that followed it which among other things raised the age of consent to 16 for sex outside marriage. And we've seen that the young underage girls that subsequently appeared in courts and rape trials were often not offered any protection by this change. We've also followed the consequences for Stead and his accomplices who were tried for their roles in the Maiden Tribute. Stead himself served a short and comfortable sentence while those that helped him were treated much more harshly. But what about 13-year-old Eliza Armstrong? The trials and the public discussion surrounding them were strikingly uninterested in Eliza. Instead, the focus was always on her mother, Elizabeth, and on her family, and of course, on Stead himself. As we've seen, for Stead, there is no question about the inevitable ruin that Eliza Armstrong faced as a poor, impressionable young girl, or about the corrupting influence of her working-class family. Thus, in Stead's mind, he was saving Eliza. With the help of the Salvation Army, Stead had arranged for Eliza to be taken to France, without telling her family. When Eliza's father learned of this, he went to look for her. This journey, for a poor working man from the East End of London to Paris, would have been extraordinary. 
When he arrived in Paris, they had already moved Eliza and moved her several times again before eventually bringing her back to London, all without informing her family. When her mother was eventually allowed to see Eliza and Eliza was returned to her care, she was asked to sign a statement that she certainly wouldn't have written herself. It read, I have received my daughter Eliza safe and sound, together with double the wages agreed upon for all the time she has been away. My daughter tells me that she has been very happy and comfortable, that the people with whom she has been have been very kind to her. I am quite satisfied that she has been subjected to no outrage or bad usage. Signed, Elizabeth Armstrong. At the trials following the maiden tribute, no one implied that Eliza herself knew why she was taken away or where. At no point during the trial was her consent or ability to consent given any thought. Of course, technically, it wasn't necessary to consider Eliza's consent in the trials as the offence was constructed through the absence of parental consent. But the failure to even acknowledge her experience and how distressing it must have been for her, a 13-year-old, is remarkable. In some respects, we've come a long way from the time of the Maiden Tribute. But in others, there are uncomfortable parallels that we are still grappling with today about the concept of consent and where it's come from, how it's reflected in our current norms, what we would like to change about those norms, and whether our current version of consent can get us there. In this final episode, we will look more closely at the limitations of current definitions of consent, both legally and socially, and the extent to which these can help us understand what good and ethical sex should be. We spoke to Chloe Kennedy, at the University of Edinburgh. Chloe is doing research on the question of deception between sexual partners and is looking at when, if ever, deception should be criminalised. There have been cases brought which give us some indications about different ways in which people might be deceptive, but there's also research that highlights the kind of things that people will be deceptive about when it comes to sex and intimate relationships. So the sorts of things range from what's the actual sexual activity, what things are you physically doing kind of to one another, um, the identity of the person you're having sex with, that's a big one. But of course, identity is a term that can mean lots of different things. It can mean the person as a whole. So like what I would call wholesale identity deception, you pretend to be a completely different person or it could mean certain attributes of that person. Gender is one thing that's come up in case law uh, in, in certain jurisdictions. Nationality, ethnicity, etc. And then there's other kinds of what some people might call kind of preconditions. So what's the nature of the relationship you have? Are you married? Aren't you married? What are your intentions with respect to your relationship? So there's a bunch of different kinds of things about which people might be deceptive. and. People have got different ways of trying to separate them out from one another so that there is some way of potentially drawing lines around, you know, what's going to potentially lead to criminal liability and what won't. You know, there's all kinds of things that might be seen as less or more important. And I guess the difficult thing to do is to find a way that doesn't feel like you're telling people what they should care about, but also doesn't mean that literally anything might be the basis of a potentially quite serious criminal conviction. 
Chloe is conducting this research because, as they stand, our laws on consent are not very clear on when deception in sexual relationships is actually illegal. And past legal judgments on this issue have not been very consistent. Scotland and also in England and Wales, what we have is essentially legislation that says two kinds of deceptions definitely matter. So that's deceptions about the nature or purpose of the act and identity, but only if it's an impersonation of someone who's known personally to the complainant. And then what we have on top of that is a definition of consent, which opens up the possibility that other kinds of deceptions might matter. So the legislation is not identical in these two jurisdictions, but the basic idea is that the agreement, the decision to have sex, has to be free. So then that opens up the question of, well, what does freedom mean? When does deception impinge on freedom enough that we would say that consent is invalid for the law's purposes? So the reason we, I think, are having these kind of difficulties in these jurisdictions is that the decision about what sorts of deceptions will impinge on freedom in the relevant way have been made on a case-by-case basis. So it's not always been clear in advance and not even sometimes in retrospect what the boundaries of the law are. So what I'm suggesting is that we have much more written into statute that says X, Y, and Z are the kinds of things that will lead to sexual consent being invalid. Chloe is looking for ways to provide clarity around deception without having decisions focus around the question of what the complainant believed and why they believed it when they consented to sex. So I'm trying to set up a framework that allows us to be able to draw lines in a way that respects and reflects the interests that we're trying to protect via sexual offences law, but doesn't make everything turn on the complainant and kind of what they thought at the time. Um, And so how I've tried to do that is through thinking about why sexual autonomy matters to us. I try and connect up kind of sexual activity and an account of kind of identity formation. So selfhood and sex, how are these things related? And basically I try and argue that one way forward is to think about how sex and its consequences are relevant to identity formation so that we can identify certain sorts of deceptions that directly bear on that process of identity formation. That all sounds quite abstract, but in the paper what I've tried to do is say, look, there could be two routes through which we can protect decision-making. So one would be because sex is quite personal and individual, if someone has said upfront and explicitly this particular thing really matters to my decision to have sex, that would be a clear indication that, you know, this is a value they hold really deeply and that should be that should be respected, okay? So that's so if somebody then engages in deception which touches on that issue, that might be a plausible candidate for criminalization. But then the second route, which wouldn't require that kind of upfront exchange of kind of conditions upon which sex will happen which to be quite honest I don't think happens all that often so the second route is more about saying look are there certain things that tend to matter to people when it comes to identity construction and can we through looking at existing research home in on those things such that we can kind of compile a list of the sorts of deceptions that would tend to matter to people because they tend to matter in the way we think about ourselves and our values. So in the paper, I do that through engaging with existing research on what are effectively the kind of building blocks of identity formation and when and how does sex and its consequences touch on those. It's an attempt to try and both preserve why we might think sexual autonomy matters, but also make the law not too overexpansive and not too nebulous in its parameters, like how do we 
how do we decide in advance what, what matters. There's a big question about what I mean by intimacy in the project and I've tried to explain in written drafts of, of work so far why I'm homing in on sex and so-called romantic relationships when of course intimacy is something that cuts across so many other kinds of relationships and so many other kinds of relationships really matter in terms of self-construction and identity construction but you know, certainly historically the two have gone together and today I do think it's also the case that they have sexual and romantic relationships have a sort of different valence but what's increasingly clear is you know romantic relationships don't always involve sex sex doesn't always involve romantic relationships right so what I'm trying to do is tease out the different ways these are still conjoined but the ways they can come apart and the ways that it might sometimes be that what we're concerned with when we are discussing deception and sex is actually deception in relationships and so while we do have some kind of legal measures in place for dealing with marriage there's a question as to whether those are always appropriate for contemporary kind of sensibilities uh, or indeed whether they kind of go too far um, but also then thinking about if there's ways of also responding when people don't get married because we also know that marriage is not the be-all and end-all for lots of people and people enter long-term relationships without getting married so it's it's trying to think creatively about you know what is it that's actually at stake here what are the harms what are the wrongs are there ways that the law can respond in ways that they, it currently doesn't and you know alternatively are there ways that we need to rein in um, the law's attempts to try and you know intervene and secure a degree of respect or kind of security I guess within within these kinds of intimate relationships Working on clarifying the legal boundaries of consent means that Chloe has to grapple with questions about why deception matters to us, why sex matters to us, and how sex and intimacy interact. It also means she has to question the boundaries of legal intervention when it comes to our intimate relationships. There's a trade-off really between recognising the way that sex is very personal and a very individual practice in some ways. It's a very personal thing to engage in and so there's a concern to have each person be able to set their own boundaries and have those respected and kind of upheld, if you like, by law. And on the other hand, predictability to the law's decision-making and knowing in advance whether somebody's going to be potentially punished or not. There is a genuine tension there, I think. There's also, I guess, a question about what criminal law as a form of public law, so it's state-sanctioned coercion, requires by way of certainty and predictability, but also like kind of fairness and the appropriateness of the boundaries of legal intervention. There might be scope for having civil liability, which is effectively non-criminal wrongdoing, ability to bring a case to court, but through a non-criminal avenue. So there's, there's ways of thinking about responding to this kind of practice in a different legal way. But then again, there's also questions around, look, what is the right place for law here full stop? You know, is there perhaps something about sex and intimate relationships, which means, although we have this desire to have them protected and to be protected within them, that actually law, law can only do so much? So I think with criminal law in particular, there are specific concerns because it's such an extreme response. But beyond that, there's also questions about, you know, how much law can and should do for us and whether there's other ways of kind of promoting good sexual ethics beyond law's kind of fairly blunt um, tools. Here, Chloe reminds us that ultimately, the ideal behind consent, in our current times at least, is to enable people to have happier, healthier sex lives. 
and to limit the harm that they might encounter during sexual interactions. Consent is intended to be a way to more ethical sex. We also spoke to Tanya Cerizier. Tanya is a criminologist at Birkbeck University and author of the book Speaking Out, Feminism, Rape and Narrative Politics. Her research focuses on the cultural politics of consent, sexuality and sexual violence. Tanya tells us why she thinks the concept of consent cannot do the work we ask of it and why consent cannot guide us towards a world with less rape and more ethical sex. Part of the problem is we start from law, and I think that's the reason that we start from consent and then try to build a sexual ethics out from that. And that's not really what the law is for. So, you know, the law is when it works, which as we know it doesn't, kind of captures a really low baseline of sex and sexual behaviour that underneath which we think is criminally culpable. And so there's a question, you know, is consent the best baseline for that. And it's definitely a better baseline than force. And I think there aren't, to my mind, kind of any real better alternatives. You know, there are critiques of how it works in law as well. But if you say as a baseline, you know, both parties need to consent or all parties involved need to consent and that can be a legal standard, then I think that's defensible. In terms of thinking about it more generally, I don't think it's a useful concept for thinking about sexual ethics, sexual politics outside of law. And the reason for that is I don't think it can do the work that we want it to do and that we try to make it do. Part of the reason that it works in law is because it's very limited. You know, it comes originally from contract law and the idea of consent is that it transforms something that might be harmful or negative into something that's legal and acceptable through what's called the moral magic of consent. You know, so for something like a tattoo, you consent to having your body disfigured or you consent to potentially painful dental work. That's what it does in law. And so in terms of thinking about sex, one of the first problems is it's really built on a very heteronormative framework where you have one party who kind of is out to get sex and you have another party who consents to sex. And this is always gendered. You know, it's imagined as the woman consenting to the man in a kind of heterosexual framework because the idea behind it is that women aren't active and desiring participants in sex you know they consent to sex that they don't really want essentially and that's the legal kind of framework of consent it also is a framework that is about contractual relations so it sets up two autonomous individuals who don't have any kind of power dynamics between them and who know what they want and are happy to say it you know so it's also a fantasy of social relations where you know you ask me a question I say yes or no and that's the way it works. To illustrate why she qualifies this contractual view of consent as a fantasy Tanya uses a popular video called Tea and Consent created for Thames Valley Police. The video uses a cup of tea as a metaphor for sex and shows a stick-figure person offering a cup of tea to another person in different situations. It uses examples like, sometimes people say yes to a cup of tea one day but don't want one the next, or that sometimes people say yes to a cup of tea and by the time you've boiled the kettle and poured the milk, 
they may have changed their mind. And ultimately, you need to respect that choice. If you think properly about the tea example, I think it shows you some of the things that are wrong with consent, which is that, you know, a cup of tea is usually a social ritual. So if someone says to you, do you want a cup of tea? And you just say no, they're probably going to think you're rude. And actually, people who do conversational analysis are like, this isn't how we engage in things. You might say, oh, you know, even if you don't really feel like a cup of tea, you might say yes because you want to have a chat or you might say yes because you want to be the person's friend. Or if you say no, you might say, oh, well, maybe I'll just have some water or, you know, something. But you don't just say kind of yes and no. And if you think about different contexts, also, it's very different to say yes or no to a cup of tea that a friend you've known for ages asks you about then if you're in a job interview and someone says, do you want a cup of tea? You're not going to say yes or no. So this is, you know, the first thing that we don't approach social interactions solely through the lens, firstly, of, you know, do I just want this? We think about them within a wider pattern of social relations that we attempt to negotiate. And those are structured by all kinds of realms of power. So we're not actually people who always just think about what we want and say yes or no in a really straightforward way. And we especially don't do that around sex. And so one of the things that a lot of research in this area has shown when they talk to young women particularly is that a lot of women engage in sex that they think of as consensual, but that they don't really want to have. And it's even not that straightforward that they really didn't want to, but they felt pressured or coerced, but, you know, they might be in a relationship and they feel like they want to be the kind of person who's up for it, who's fun, who likes to have sex and likes to do things. And that's the way they see themselves. And so, or they feel like it's unfair or they think, you know, well, actually, you know, I'm not really feeling like it, but we haven't had sex in a while. And so I might as well. And those kinds of pressures operate differently on women than they do on men, but there's something that we need to think about and that consent doesn't really capture And it especially doesn't really capture how we actually deal with the fact that as a society, we don't enable people to communicate around sex. We tend to keep it as something that's very outside the realm of normal communication. You know, most research that's done with young people show that they're very nonverbal around their sexual interactions, full stop, that communication tends to be very much about implicit things. You know, one um, article I read talks about the semi-magical appearance of a condom is how you know that you're on the road to having sex. And um, consent doesn't ask those kinds of questions. It doesn't actually think about things like communication. It doesn't think about the fact that generally we don't live in a society where we're given a lot of help in terms of building our capacity even to think about and know about our sexual desires and to engage in sexual experimentation, even though it's such an important part of our society and our lives. And it doesn't grapple with the fact that all of our social interactions occur within dynamics of power. And when it comes to sex and heterosexuality, particularly those kinds of gender dynamics of power are so important that the idea that like the teen consent video has, you have these two stick figures, kind of one person saying, do you want to have sex? And the other person thinking, do I want to have sex? And saying yes or no, is not the way it works. And I don't think that framing things through consent really helps us to get there. And when we try to change that through talking about enthusiastic or affirmative consent, it really just kind of sidesteps the problem. Like it tries to make the concept do things it can't do. One of the problems is, There's not one single kind of concept that is going to 
do the work that we want to do around sex because it's a complex social issue. The other problem is it comes from a very kind of basic legal standard that I don't think works for thinking about a better form of sexuality. And, you know, it doesn't see sex in the proper kind of social context in which I think it needs to be thought about. One of the problems with consent is it starts with that, you know, two people in bed having an interaction rather than thinking about what do you need as a society to equip those people with that will enable them to come together in ways, you know, that ideally can enhance their pleasure and well-being rather than causing them harm. Unfortunately, I think it's not as simple as kind of saying, you know, we replace consent with something else, but rather think about what we need in order to have the preconditions where it might be meaningful to talk about consent and about then whether it's the best thing. And I think that is about thinking about sexual interactions more broadly as part of social interactions. So moving away a bit from what some people talk about as a kind of sexual exceptionalism, where we see sex as this sphere completely separate from all our other interactions, you know, because it's not. So that's one thing to think about sex more socially. And so to think about sex as involved in communication, as involved in the way we treat people. The second thing is actually to enhance our capacities to communicate well with each other and, you know, to engage with each other more relationally. And that that's a difficult thing. And finally, I think to actually really address the wider power dynamics and particularly the gendered power dynamics of heterosexuality and kind of how we do that is the million dollar question because obviously that's something that you know feminists have been attempting to do for a long time and it's really at those kind of most basic intimate levels that things are hardest to shift and it comes back to that question I think of the personal being political and one of the things that I think about as well is over the last 50 years you know, we haven't really managed to transform people's intimate relationships, but also kind of other equally personal things. Like one of the other things that really hasn't shifted, for instance, is in heterosexual relationships, the amount of domestic labor and the gender division of that kind of sounds weird, but I think it's a comparable example because it's in the home. You know, it's about the kind of, you know, very everyday and intimate ways that we interact with each other. And the way that we talk about it has shifted. You know, we have a recognition that often working women do a double shift. We have this kind of valorization of men doing things in the home, but it's still seen as helping out. And so what's changed is actually that in heterosexual relations, men now tend to think they do more than they do. And women also often think men do more than they do, but the amounts they do haven't actually shifted. And so going back to some of those kinds of early principles of second wave feminism, which was that we need to really kind of look at how our interpersonal relationships are shaped by bigger political structures is really important and is going to be difficult and hard. I think the problem with how the legislation frames the problem is that The criminal law sees sexual violence as a problem of a small number of criminal men, you know, who don't abide by the kind of normal standards of our society. Whereas I think a feminist framing of the problem for me 
is to say that the problem is that the normal standards of our society don't actually enhance the sexual autonomy of women, particularly. So the criminal law frames sexual violence as a problem of exceptionality and essentially kind of bad men who can be located, identified and kind of cast out. Whereas feminist framings have said, we have set up a society which produces and encourages sexual violence. And they're very different framings that lead to very different solutions. As Tanya focuses on public narratives about sexual consent, we asked her about the Me Too movement and whether it has helped shift our public perceptions around consent. You know, if you think about consent and what counts as sexual violence, I'm not sure that in many ways it changed that that much. What I think it did do is actually make clear the amount of behaviour and situations that women experience through the lens of being sexualized and through sexual harassment and harm. So I think, you know, actually the focus in Me Too, which often was implicit rather than explicit, but the focus in Me Too on the workplace and talking about the fact that for, you know, first of all, in Hollywood and acting that, you know, there's a sexualized economy that women don't have the option not to participate in and sexual harassment is really normalized. And it opened up discussions in other industries like, you know, I work in universities And since then, there's been really kind of ongoing conversations about the fact that sexual harassment is really a normal part, particularly of women's early careers, you know, being postgraduate students, being early career academics. And I think really exposing that kind of everyday level of sexualization, you know, and bringing back attention to what we often talk about as a kind of continuum of violence and harm is really important. And I think that it's actually opened up the level to which that affects people's lives on a day-to-day basis. In terms of thinking again about consent and the question about Aziz Ansari, I think because we're talking more about those things, inevitably it opens up conversations. But I feel like with Me Too, as with many kind of feminist movements that move into Um, I suppose, popular culture or broader discussions, there's an oscillation that you see a back and forth between actually kind of saying, okay, this is an endemic and everyday problem to then wanting to go back to, you know, if we can just find all the Harvey Weinsteins and lock them up, everything will be okay. And I think that it's very difficult for us in our society and culture to stay with the former, to actually kind of stay with this idea that the problem of sexual violence its normality, its lack of exceptionality, because we always want to find, you know, the kind of monster bad man and, you know, find a way to kind of lock them up, basically. And that means that I think we often miss opportunities. So, you know, talking about the Aziz Ansari case, I mean, I thought that that story was very interesting and there's a lot of questions about journalistic ethics and things there. But, you know, for me, the question about, you know, whether Aziz Ansari should be or was cancelled, you know, wasn't actually the question. You know, the question was about the fact that someone who clearly saw themselves and thought of themselves and was thought of as kind of like a nice guy, a pro-feminist man, was engaging in these kinds of sexual behaviours and clearly not really getting what was wrong. And I think that points to a wider social problem that we need to be thinking about, the fact that when it comes to a lot of heterosexual experiences, there's a real mismatch between what the two people involved, usually two people, think has happened or think is going on or how they feel about it. And that's a real problem. 
Consent is the cornerstone of our laws on sexual violence, and it serves to inform how we determine what is acceptable and what is unacceptable sexual behaviour. Legally, the current version of consent seems to be a better framework than anything we've previously had. But it also doesn't seem to be doing what we hoped it would, as Tanya puts it. Going back to you know early feminist ideas, you know the idea was to imagine a world without rape, you know not a world in which every rapist is punished, you know, because the the first one is a much more exciting vision. So what did happen to Eliza Armstrong? Well, we don't know very much. The following is recounted in blogs by historians Margaret Makepeace and Helena Goodwin, who have tried to piece together some of Eliza's story. Following the trials, Eliza was placed in the Princess Louise Home for the Protection of Young Girls in Essex. It was reported in the press that she did well at the home and in June 1886, one year after the Maiden Tribute, she was awarded a prize for general good conduct. By June 1889, she had been taken by the matron to a situation with a good family in the country. The rest of her story has been pieced together from census, birth and death records. In 1891, an Eliza Armstrong, aged 19, was a nursemaid in the household of an architect in Northumberland. In 1893, Eliza married a Henry George West, and the 1901 census shows they had three children. Eliza was widowed in 1906 and remarried in 1911 to Samuel O'Donnell, and they had more children. We're not sure how many because records are somewhat confusing around this. Eliza was widowed for a second time in 1917. The death of Eliza, now O'Donnell, at the age of 66, is recorded in County Durham in 1938. It also seems that Eliza kept in touch with Williamstead. She wrote a letter dated 6th March 1906, after the death of her first husband. His death had left Eliza struggling to support her family. In this letter to Stead, she thanks him for his kind and welcome letter and apologises for not replying sooner. She signs off thanking you so much for all your kindness, I never will forget nor cease to remember all your kindness to us. It's poignant how little we know about Eliza and that some of the only words we have from her are these that she's written to Stead. In many ways, it's tempting to dismiss the Maiden Tribute as a tale about eccentric Victorians whose warped and moralistic views on sex creep into their laws and social norms around rape and sexual violence. But it provides us with an opportunity to reflect on how our views now continue to shape our laws and how we apply them in practice and what aspects of this we might want to change. This has been the fifth and final episode of The Age of Consent, a podcast by Narrative Matters, written and produced by me, Amrita Alawalia McMedis, and Gabrielle Blackburn. 
We would like to thank Chloe Kennedy and Tanya Cerizier for taking part in these interviews. The series was commissioned by Dr. Laura Lamas-Niemi as part of a project funded by the Leverhulme Trust. The music in this episode is the Victorian Music Box Lullaby Song by Iron LPL. To access support, you can call the National Rape Crisis Helpline at 0808 802 9999.